God, I pray that uh, through the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit, you would use your word to speak to your people this morning. That is our hope and that is our desire. And we ask that you would uh, give us the posture of students this morning, not teachers, not experts, but people who need to hear your word from you so that our attitudes and our uh, mindsets are corrected by the words of scripture. We do not come as masters of the text. We come as your people to be taught. So in the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, empower us to hear your word rightly. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, the passage that we have before us this morning starts like this. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. So given our country's painful and incriminating history, it's difficult for us to come to a verse like this and really hear what it's saying uh, to us and, and to others. Uh, and indeed, some Christians in the history of our country have used verses like this in order to justify the practice of slavery in our country and to defend it as a God-given institution. So one Christian uh, in the middle of the 19th century uh, said this very clearly, the right of holding slaves is clearly established in Holy Scriptures, both by precept and by example. Uh, and it wasn't just in the South that people were saying that. There was a minister from the North, from New Jersey, uh, who was arguing that, that the Bible teaches that there are rights of property. There are masters and there are slaves. And so uh, slavery is an acceptable social institution. And he actually went on the offensive from that. And he said, this is what, these, these are his words. He says, the desire and the attempt to deprive others of the property, which the law of God and the law of the land have made it lawful for them to hold, is to strike a blow at the very existence of civilization and Christianity. The problem with the abolitionists, those who are trying to abolish the practice of slavery in the U.S., these Christians were arguing, is that they're adding sort of secular philosophy to the Bible. They're coming to the Bible with sort of the socialistic mindset to it, and, and that's where they're getting it wrong. And on the other hand, those who are uh, supporting and upholding the practice of slavery in the U.S. are, are going to cling to uh, more and more faithfully to the Bible and to live out the truths of Scripture because they're reading it rightly. So uh, one man, Frederick Ross, said this, the slaveholder with the Bible in his heart and hand will do justice and love mercy in higher and higher rule. Every evil will be removed and the Negro will be elevated to the highest attainments he can make and be prepared for whatever destiny God intends. And so we come to a passage like 1 Peter 2 with some trepidation because we hear words like that and then we see the, the brutal practices of slavery and the injustice that was apparent there and we see that, that something is not right here and how these people are approaching the text. We see that the Bible can be manipulated for selfish ends and self-serving means. But our conviction here at Trinity Church is that the Bible is the Word of God. And that means that we come to Scriptures not seeking to justify our own preconceived notions of what's right and wrong and justify our own mindset, but we come to Scripture to be informed of what is right and what is wrong, to be informed of what God's will is, and for our mindsets and preconceived notions to be corrected by the Word of God. We stand under God's Word. 
In other words, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is not with the text like 1 Peter 2. It's with us using the Bible for our sinful purposes. So as we're taking up a passage this morning that has some historical baggage for us, we're going to strive to read it under the guidance of the Spirit of God, which is what we were just praying for. We pray every Sunday as we open God's Word together for God's Spirit to enliven our hearts and minds so that we would read it rightly, so that we'd sit under the teaching of the Word of God. So that's why we pray that. So we're taking the posture of of students seeking to learn from God rather than as masters of the text dictating what it says. So we are sitting under the teaching of the Word this morning. So our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Uh, this would be a good time to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done that. And uh, if you'd like to use the Pew Bible, they're found in the Pew Racks in front of you. It's found on page 1201. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So this is a, a part of a passage that Peter is giving specific instructions to Christians for what it means to live a gospel life in the real world, in the different situations that they find themselves living in. And here, we're going to get a pretty shocking command to one of these groups of people. So he's going to give us a shocking command, and then he's going to root that shocking command in the shocking God who gives the commands. So we're going to see it in two parts this morning. We're going to start off with the shocking command that he gives. He's addressing slaves, and the shocking part is he's telling slaves to submit to even bad masters. So here's how he says it. 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Okay, so not only is Peter telling slaves to submit to their masters, that would have been a hard enough uh, command, a charge to them, but he's telling them that they're sub- to submit to not just good masters, but to masters who are bad people, who are, who are harsh masters. They're, they're crooked, they're perverse masters. These are the kind of people that are going to punish you no matter what. There's no justice here. It's, it's just kind of arbitrarily treatment, arbitrary treatment of slaves. They could be treated very poorly. And in fact, Peter's even anticipating that. He's anticipating that some of these slaves are going to do good and be beaten anyway. I mean, it's one thing to be beaten if you're doing what's wrong, but another thing to be beaten if you're doing good. And this is a bad situation. And in the face of this incredible injustice, Peter is telling them, submit. That's what you are called to do. I mean, this sounds really wrong to us, right? I mean, none of us would say this to another person, I don't think. And yet Peter does. So why does he do so? That's what we have to figure out this morning. First of all, we need to note whom Peter is addressing. It makes a difference who he's addressing here. Specifically, he's talking to Christian slaves. He's talking directly to them. And that changes the picture in at least two ways. On the one hand, it's treating slaves as human beings who make moral choices and can have ethical deliberations and who can follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a significant change from the Roman mindset. The Romans didn't even consider slaves to be moral beings. They were just supposed to do what the master said. They were kind of mindless entities to them. They were property. So in addressing them directly, Peter is elevating the status of slaves and saying, no, you are human beings. 
You are human beings who can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he addresses them directly, elevating their status. They're, they're humans to be addressed. They're not property to be discarded. The second thing that that does is it, because it's a command that's given to slaves, that means that it's not a command that's given to masters. So if we look at how this was used in the debate over American slavery in the 19th century, it's a misuse of the text. For a master to take up a text like 1 Peter 2 as ammunition is a misuse of the text because it's addressed to Christian slaves as opposed to pagan masters or even Christian masters. So what the text is doing is telling Christians how to live if they find themselves in a position of slavery. It's not a tool given to slave owners to keep people in slavery. We should also note that the context that Peter is writing in is a, is a different kind of a context than, than American slavery was. And Peter had little hope of overthrowing the institution of slavery because it was part of uh, life in the Roman Empire. It wasn't like in England or in America where there was a, a chance that a grassroots effort could, could sort of abolish slavery, which is what happened in our country and in England, by many Christians, I should note. It's not like that in the Roman Empire. It's just a totally different situation. There's no hope of that. Christians are this, this fledgling little religion, and there's no chance that they're going to have massive social change like that. So we have to remember that this text is written to Christians who are in slavery in, in order to instruct them how they are to live out the gospel in their place in life. So it's not written to keep slaves in slavery. It's, it's not the point of the text. We also have to remember that this text is part of a, of a larger unit that begins in verse 11 of chapter 2, and it really flows from the command that Peter gives in verse 12. So it's all flowing out of this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, Peter's giving this instruction all Christians are to live such good lives among those who don't believe in Jesus that those who don't believe in Jesus can see the good that God is doing in them and can recognize that God is good and will then come to glorify him by putting their faith in Jesus. In other words, Peter's telling Christian slaves how to evangelize their masters. Do good no matter what, even if you're treated harshly, even if things are going really badly for you, you obey God, you do good, and you, you then manifest a life that's shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the middle of an injustice. And you pray and you hope that maybe in God's grace, the master would be able to see that and see that, yes, God is good, and that he too would put his faith in Jesus and glorify God. And it changes the picture of what's happening here, doesn't it? It's not about keeping people in slavery. It's about teaching Christians how to live a gospel life no matter what life situation they find themselves in, even if they find themselves a slave, even if they find themselves a slave to a really harsh master. Now, back in verse 16 that we saw last week, uh, Peter reminded Christians that they are free, but that their freedom shouldn't be used as an excuse to do evil. They are slaves of God, which means that they are to do good in every situation in life. Similarly, here, Peter reminds slaves that they are called to do good. They may suffer, but in any case, they need to do what is right. He's saying, he's reminding them, it doesn't do a Christian slave any good if they're being beaten for doing something wrong, right or wrong. That's, it's a punishment. It's a harsh punishment. But if you do wrong and then, and then get punished for it, it's not commendable. It's just the natural consequences. But if you do good and then you suffer for it because you have an unjust master, then this is commendable to God, or, or a little bit more literally, it's grace from God. 
the word that's translated commendable in my uh, translation is really grace. It's in the sense that, that this is something that's gracious to God. It, it's grace-filled. It's, uh, it is commendable in God's sight, but in the other sense that there's kind of a special uh, degree of grace given to those who are in the middle of suffering unjustly. So the bottom line that Peter's giving, uh, instruction that Peter's giving to the slaves here is that they're called to do good no matter what. And really, that's the paradigm for all Christians. It's all flowing from that heading in 2.12. Live such good lives, such gospel lives among those who are not Christians that they could see the good in you that the gospel has rooted there and that they would turn to Jesus and glorify God. I mean, that's the bottom line here. We need to remember that when we suffer unjustly or when we're treated poorly, others don't determine whether or not we can follow God. As a Christian, we follow God no matter what. It's not that anyone can, can keep you from obeying God or from doing good from following Jesus. That's what we're called to do. We're called to do good even if we've got a bad master. We're called to do good even if we're treated poorly. We're called to do good even if it means that we're going to suffer more for it as a result. That's the bottom line for us. We are called to do good, to obey God no matter what, and no one else can keep us from doing that. This is an important lesson for us. See, we're called to do good. We're called to follow God no matter what, and when we do so, it serves as a testimony to the goodness of God at work in our lives. It's an extension of what we said last week. How we live our lives matters. And here, it matters how you live when you're being treated unjustly. When you're in a situation like, like slavery, with a bad master even. It matters how you live your life. Your life counts. It can either draw people to God or it can repel them from Him. It can either be a powerful testimony to God's grace in Jesus Christ and to the power of the gospel to really set you free, or it can say that Jesus doesn't really make that much of a difference. How you live your life matters. So Peter's here telling slaves that they are to do good no matter what. All Christians are to do good no matter what, no matter how someone else treats them, no matter how bad of a situation they find themselves in. And that really removes our excuses, doesn't it? And I think sometimes we use the, the bad behavior of others and their mistreatment of us as an excuse for us to not do good. We can live sub-gospel lives because, well, they did that thing and it was kind of mean and so I'm going to do this thing. I don't have to sort of be forgiving or gracious or loving or those kind of things. I don't have to live out the gospel because they did something bad to me. Our friend uh, Enoch has a good illustration of this. If you've been around long enough, you've probably heard this before, but, but he takes a, a coffee cup and he says, what happens? He doesn't do the, the tambourine thing. That's my little addition there. So he takes his coffee cup and he says, okay, what, what happens if it gets bumped? If it gets shaken? What, what comes out of the cup? Well, if coffee's in the cup, then coffee comes out. Whatever is inside the cup when it's bumped, that's what comes out. He says that's what your life is too. When someone bumps you, when someone shakes you, it's what's inside of you that comes out. So if someone cuts you off when you're driving your car, how you respond is an indicator of what's in your heart, of what's inside of you. So if you respond in grace and mercy and kindness then that means that the gospel has been at work in your life. But if you respond by being instantly filled with rage and making obscene gestures and swearing and all these things, where does it come from? Did the other person put that in your heart? No, they just bumped you. They jostled you a little bit, and what came out 
is what's in your heart. See, this is really important. Your circumstances don't determine whether or not you can obey God. No one else can determine whether or not you can do good and follow him. Because you are called to follow Jesus no matter what. And it's what's in your heart that pours out in your life when you're in difficult circumstances. No one else determines whether or not you can follow God. Wherever you find yourself, you are, okay, you are called to obey God. And that's why Peter can make this shocking command to slaves, to people in one of the most unjust institutions of humanity, in the middle of slavery, even when they've got evil masters. They could say, listen, you're called to do good no matter what. You can submit to them, even, even if they're not a good master, even if they're a harsh master, even if they're a, a crooked, evil person, because you're called to do good no matter what. So that's the shocking command he gives. Now, this is the really important transition here. He gives the shocking command. Slaves obey, even bad masters, but now he's going to root it in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's where the power and the motivation comes from. So that's where we turn to next. This shocking command to, for slaves to obey masters is rooted in the shocking God who has sent his son to suffer and die for us. So this is, that's where Peter goes with it. Verse 21, after the command, slaves submit to even bad masters. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I mean, this is really all of our lives. Jesus is the example for us. So if you want to know how you are to live in a particular situation, you have to look to Jesus. He is the one who sets the example. We follow in his footsteps. He's the paradigm. So if you want to know how to live in a particular situation, you look at the life of Jesus. He's the one who goes before us. He's the one who sets the path. So what example does Jesus give us that's relevant for uh, unjust suffering? Peter uses words from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter is using the words from Isaiah, this great passage in Isaiah 52 and 53 that, that Emily read earlier this morning to say this is what Jesus did. This is Jesus. He came and, and he suffered for us. This is the ministry of Jesus. He was the one who bore our sin. We, we looked at him and we think, well, it looks like he's being punished by God. It looks like he's done something wrong, and so God is, is laying sin on him because of, of his wrong. He's suffering because of, of wrongdoing, right? That's what we look at Jesus and we think, well, that must have happened. If he's suffering, then it must be because he's a bad person. We consider him abandoned by God, afflicted by God. And yet what that passage is saying and what Peter's drawing from is that that was for us. Jesus did not do anything wrong. Our sin was on his shoulders. He bore the burden of our sin on the cross. His wounds have provided the healing for us. Jesus died. He suffered unjustly to redeem an unlovable people, people like you and me, and to make us lovable because of his righteousness. 
He has redeemed people by his blood on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. So Peter is, is telling people who are in an unjust situation, slaves who might have really bad masters, he's saying, look back to Jesus. And you can begin to understand what's going on here. He too suffered unjustly. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was killed for you. So if you want to know about unjust suffering, you have to look at Jesus. He's the one that, that shows what, what true injustice is, what, what unjust suffering really is. The, the passage from Isaiah 53 demonstrates, is demonstrated in the life of Jesus. That is his ministry. Unjust suffering for us. I was reminded just this past week of how crazy the suffering and death of Jesus are. I mean, we've, we've become very accustomed to seeing crosses around. We have them on our churches, in the front of our churches, on our steeples and all sorts of things. We even have like gold jewelry with crosses on them. Some people wear those kind of things. But if we step back for a minute and think about it, this is bizarre. A cross is a means of execution. It'd be like having a, a noose or an electric chair or, or a guillotine on a piece of jewelry, except the cross is a, is a bloodier and it's a more sadistic form of execution. The, the cross is a, is a shocking scandal if we, if we really stop and, and take a, our cultural baggage away from it and really look at what the cross is. It is a scandal. In one of the other New Testament letters, Paul says as much. He's saying, listen, this is 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So humans are looking for something powerful, something wise. They, they want to be on the winning team, so they're looking for something of glory. And you look at Jesus, and that's not what he looked like. The Isaiah 52 and 53 passage, there was nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. No, he suffered. He looked weak. He looked unwise and foolish. And yet this was the power and the wisdom of God for our salvation. This is how God rescued the world. He was beat up and killed by people like you and me. The cross is scandalous. It is shocking. If, if we can stop and, and think about it objectively for a moment, think, well, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is it who would, who would suffer? What kind of God is it who would, who would send his son to, to suffer and to be beaten and to be killed for, for sinners? What, what kind of a plan is this? This is, this is a shocking plan. The cross is crazy, and yet it is the power and the wisdom of God at work for the salvation of the world. Peter brings the example of Jesus in to remind us that, that unjust suffering doesn't mean that God is not, has lost control. That's not true. You look back to the cross of Jesus Christ, and in that moment, it might have looked like God was not in control. In that moment, it just looked like, like Jesus was weak, that, like the Son of God suffering and dying on a cross. It looked like he didn't have any power. And yet that was the power of God being displayed in the most brutal of suffering. So 
as Christians, when we find ourselves in a situation of injustice, when we are suffering, we look to the cross and say, this doesn't mean that God isn't in control. Things have looked much worse than they do right now in the middle of my suffering. And that was the power of God at work to save the world. Further, unjust suffering doesn't mean that we're not chosen by God. It doesn't mean that we're not God's people. Sometimes we kind of, uh, there's sort of this this health, wealth, kind of prosperity, sort of a gospel thing that's saying, if things are going well for you, that's God's blessing. If things are not going well for you, then that means that God is against you. So if you find yourself in a position of slavery, like these guys did that Peter's addressing, you might think, well, God must be against me. No, Peter's saying actually, actually the opposite of that, verse 21. No, this is what you were called to. If you're in the middle of being in the middle of slavery, in the middle of injustice, if you're suffering for doing good, it doesn't mean that God hasn't chosen you. No, you were called to this because Jesus set the example. So you look back to the cross of Jesus Christ, you say, well, he was chosen and he suffered. God's power and his wisdom are, are so different than our power and wisdom or conceptions of what that looks like. God works through incredible circumstances to accomplish his plan. No matter what, he is in control. And in Jesus Christ, he has chosen you. So if even Jesus suffered, and he is our example, then we shouldn't be surprised if we too will end up suffering. In fact, Jesus told his followers that before he died. John 15 said, if the world hates me, or if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. This is an important reminder for Christians in our context, in the United States, because we've enjoyed a long period of peace, and and we praise God that that we live in a place that has taken religious, uh, the freedom of religious expression seriously, and we we thank God that we have not faced persecution for our faith, at least few of us had. But it's not a given, and it's not a requirement for obedience to God. It's not a requirement for our faith in Jesus Christ. So if we do end up finding that we become in a position where we do suffer for the gospel, when we suffer for even doing good, Peter gives a command. Well, look to Jesus. He's the example. He's the one we follow. And of course, that's what we are called to obey if we're not in the middle of unjust suffering too. We take Jesus as our example. He is the pattern that we follow. I want to look at that word just a little bit more. The word Peter uses there is, is example. This is taken from the, the education world. So it's like the pattern of the alphabet that you write out, and then uh, students who are first learning, they'll trace the A, B, C. This is the, the, the same word. It's example. It's a pattern that you follow. So in the same way, Jesus is our pattern or our example. We pattern our lives after his. We trace our life after the life of Jesus, time after time after time, so that eventually we become increasingly looking like Jesus Christ, like our life increasingly looks like Jesus' life because we're patterning our life after him. He is our example. And what did Jesus do? He did good no matter what. He didn't fight for his rights. He didn't fight against the injustice. He said, no, he gave his life over to God. He entrusted his life to God, and then he lived in obedience to God no matter what. And he suffered, and he was killed. 
But rather than fighting back, he gave his life to God. And as a result, God accomplished his great salvation for the world through his son Jesus so that Peter can quote from Isaiah 53 and remind us that Jesus bore our sin on the cross to remove sin from us and to allow us to live for righteousness. The death of Jesus is not just an example of suffering, but it's an example of the power of God transforming the whole picture for you and me. So rather than being enslaved to sin forever, we're broken free from that bondage and we're free now to live in obedience to God, to do God, to do good and obey God no matter what our circumstances are. It's where the power and the motivation for this good living come from. It's from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't something that you can just sort of do on your own. Peter reminds us from, from again, from Isaiah 53, we were out wandering around, lost, in the darkness. We were like sheep wandering out in the wilderness. But God has sent his son, Jesus, the good shepherd, to bring us back to himself. He's the one who directs our soul, who watches over us. I mean, this is the good news. God has rescued us by the suffering and the death of Jesus. So what do we do? You give your life to God. Now, what else can you do? Like Jesus, you don't have to fight anymore for your rights and all that stuff. You put your life in God's hands. You entrust your life to him, and that frees you to be able to pour out your life in obedience to him and in service of him. It frees you from the tyranny of having your emotions and your moods depend on how other people treat you because that doesn't matter anymore. You've been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are able to obey God. You are able to do good no matter what. And when we do this, it is a powerful testimony to the life-changing power of God at work in our lives. Because where else could this come from? Where else would it be possible for a slave to be able to be beaten day in and day out by an evil person who's treating him as subhuman and to be able to do good every day, no matter how badly they're treated, even if it means that they're going to suffer worse for it, where else could that power come from? It's the gospel. It's the story that, that God sent his son Jesus to suffer and to die for us. And he sets the example for us. He sets the pattern for us. And it's his work in our lives that enables us to do it. And so it's always a testimony to God's grace, never a testimony to our endurance or our ability to do good. It's a testimony to God's grace at work in our lives. We give our lives to God, and we pray that God will use the good that he is growing in our hearts to bring more people to follow his son Jesus and therefore to glorify him. Because he deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise of every creature on earth. And so if we get to live our lives as a testimony to his glory, what greater privilege is there? Because he has done everything needed for us. We're not enslaved to the whims of our emotions or our circumstances anymore. He has changed the whole picture for us. And because of that, we give our lives to him. And every day we live in obedience to him. And we do good because we want more people to glorify our incredible God who has saved us. But this does not come naturally to, to us, does it? Please pray with me. Our surprising, shocking God, we thank you for the message of Jesus.
We thank you for sending your son to teach us what it means to live in obedience to you, to show us what life lived to the full looks like. We thank you that he suffered, that he was beaten and bruised, that he was killed for us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus did not just suffer and die, but that you vindicated him by raising him from death, saying death does not have sting or victory anymore. Jesus has the victory because you have vindicated him. He is your son. And we thank you that he is now seated at the right hand of you, our Father God, interceding for us. And God, I pray that you would help us to follow his example. None of our lives are perfect. Life can be very difficult. I pray that in those difficult moments, you'd bring us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we may be filled with joy, even in the middle of suffering. That our lives will be marked by hope, even in a situation that seems hopeless. That our lives will be marked by peace, in situations where there should be turmoil. That our lives would be an outpouring of love rather than hatred as a reflection of your incredible love in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.